Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. How's it going? Hey, Blake. It's it's going. <laughs> We're here. It's going. We're here. Uh, we're recording this live on August 12th, 2021. Uh, this is Human Factors Cast. Uh, quick programming notes to everybody. I am changing my office hours. Next uh, Tuesday, they will not happen. They will be happening on Monday instead from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, it's not big change, but something the top here for these programming notes in addition to that uh we got something a little bit different for you all this weekend um it's gonna be a fun deviation from our normal deep dives uh so you may not uh, you may have noticed one of our deep dives is not necessarily missing this week we're just moving it and it's not going to be on the topic that we talked about last week so it's uh we're trying something new with the deep dives um so we're going to try some of these uh these topics that are of interest let me just say that, uh, that are maybe not covered on the show, right? So the Olympics just ended. Um, so if you're curious about human factors and the Olympics, you might want to check out the deep dive when it drops this weekend. So uh, check back for that. Um, Blake, is there anything else? I feel like I'm there's programming notes, but I'm missing them. I don't know. I'm fidgeting. I think you're good. We got some cool stuff coming up from the deep dive side, and you changed your office hours, so I think you're good. No big news. All right. Let's. Anyway, you're here for Human Factors News. That's right. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This week, we have gaming and transportation, aviation, and safety. But it could be anything. Uh, But as long as it relates to the field of Human Factors. Blake, what's our story this week? So this week, we're talking a little bit about how games can influence uh, passenger safety. So a study from the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, evaluated how serious games game, the air safety world, could be used as a tool for passenger education. So serious games is a passive or persuasive technology application developed by the University of Udine in Italy. The objective of this project was to improve the level of occupant safety and incident survivability by making information more transparent and effective to flying public through the use of video games. This study evaluated information retention results from three topics of passenger education information presented to each participant in three various ways, so a three-by-three. And the study found that a significant difference in retention was based on the presentation style. So after playing the serious game, retention of information was significantly better than after reviewing the briefing card or a video briefing for all different assessments that were used. So having a participant virtually perform the action being taught ended up creating a better understanding of the action and resulted in better retention of that information. So finding that knowledge retention is improved through an interactive style of information presentation suggests that passenger safety briefing materials using an interactive medium may improve passenger knowledge of safety procedures, which could improve adherence to those safety procedures, especially during an emergency. So Nick, this is something I think we've we've probably touched on a bunch of times throughout the in, you know the entirety of the podcast. You know, using video games and training, whether it's like the from a VR headset or just a straight up game to kind of get you immersed in something. But I think this is a a great application that we really haven't seen in you know flying and then also passenger safety. Yeah, so I want to talk about a few things with this, but I think just generally this is a this is an awesome story and huge shout out to our patrons for picking this this week. Um, it kind of is a a confluence of a lot of interesting things going on here. You have games, you have aviation, you have safety, you have training. Um, and and so the one thing that I want to uh, mention right here at the top is that yes, we have talked about the VR applications in the past. Um, and this uh, is not a VR application. Let's get that out of the way. But the, the the video game that they're playing is pretty low fidelity, and that's okay. It just goes to show that fidelity does not equal an increase or decrease in uh, efficacy, right, towards some of these um, training applications. Uh, 
I my general thoughts on this is that um, this is uh, kind of it's the word I'm looking for without being too negative here. It's it's seemingly obvious that the more that you do to practice something, the better retention you will have for that thing. Um, and we can certainly talk about that, but I think generally this is a great way to kind of communicate what tasks need to be done in the event of an emergency. Blake, I want to get your general thoughts on this piece. Um, and I do want to go into the reason why they did this to begin with. Sure. So, I mean, I, I, much like you, I don't really know a better way to say it, but I think the end of the the blurb kind of summed it up. Like, it does present itself as kind of like a no-duh. This should make a little bit more... It should have more retention because it's an interactive medium. Now, if we really... Because if we really kind of think back and, you know, think about the fact that, like, from our original schooling, right, for human factors or HCI, anything that deals with either one of those topics, it should be kind of obvious that this will happen. You'll have a little bit better retention if you're doing some, you know, almost active learning versus just passively listening to somebody show you a video or talk you through anything. Because now you have the potential, even if, it, even, I guess, in a virtual world, which I know you're much more familiar with them than I am, but the fact that you're you're doing something that's mimicking what the instructions told you to do should just likely give you a little bit more of, you know, those cognitive markers to know what to do if that situation maybe arose in the real world. Uh, the, the interesting thing is what's that like what's that transfer of knowledge outside of like a pre and post test um, world? Like, let's say you had an accident on the plane and you had to respond in a certain way based off of any of the topics covered. Uh, but I think it's a cool first step to show how, one, maybe we end up making you know, the flight experience that much more fun for people or more enjoyable and potentially actually have people really pay attention and learn how to you know, do things like brace if there was an impact or you know, how to use your ox- oxygen mask pr- appropriately. Um, cause I, it's, I would imagine, and I can't really, I can, all I can really do is speculate, but I would imagine that if you were asked to do some of these tasks that you maybe have heard, you know, 10, 10 or 20 times through various flights, you still may not be able to do them, you know, very effectively or remember all of the steps. Uh, so doing something like this, that's a little more involved, uh, should provide you with a pretty good trade-off of like spending a little bit of time playing a game and then being able to do it actually in the real world. So I think it's an awesome study, but I do agree with you that it feel it felt like it was pretty obvious, at least based off of like the human factors and psychology background that I think we both have. Okay, you brought up some really great points that I want to touch on. Um, so let I don't know where to go. Let me. Let me start first by saying uh, I have play tested this. I, I've seen this application. It's widely available for you to download. Um, the game itself is called Air Safety World. It's on Android and iOS. You can go download it, play it while you're listening to this if you like. Um, and what it does is it sets you basically through a tutorial of all the things that you would expect, right? You can go and do like uh, uh, how to put on your vest or um, how to brace for an impact or uh, put on the oxygen mask. There's a couple other ones like emergency exits on a specific model of planes. So you can, you know, uh, select if it's an Airbus or a Boeing and it will know where the exits are on that specific model. Uh, even within, you know, Boeing, there's several different models of aircraft. And so, um, you know, it will know where it is and it'll place you at a random spot in the airplane. It'll tell you where you're looking at. Uh, there's also how to operate the emergency doors. Um, so I, I, th- awesome I thought this one. was so. Look, like at at it looks hokey. Like I I want to bring this up on stream, but we are an audio podcast, so I'm going to try to describe it the best I can. Um, it is uh, a, a I don't want to say low fidelity. It's a mobile game, um, and so you look at this and you're like, yes, that is of mo- mobile quality, right? Uh, and Basically, uh, here I have it up for those watching on the stream. Um, it is of mobile quality, and and you can see that there are so, several different briefings that you can do. And um, basically, as they go through it, they're instructing you to do these things. And the reason I bring this up is you said 
uh, for somebody who's been on many flights, who's heard this many times before, um, there's the uh, likelihood that even they might not know exactly what to do in this scenario. And I, like I said, spent about 20 minutes on this game earlier going through all the tutorials, making sure I understood for, you know, as research for tonight's episode. And, um, you know, I, I will say I'm honestly a little surprised with how little I knew about some of these tasks. So if you think about the five tasks that I mentioned, you know, being able to brace for impact, um, that I knew roughly, right? Like I knew, you know, you put your head down. I didn't maybe even visualize putting your feet behind your knees or putting your arms under your thighs, right? I didn't, I didn't think to do all that, but now I do, right? Like it's given me a new kind of outlook on this. Um, and at first I was kind of like lukewarm on this study, but after do, after actually going through this and doing it, I'm like really impressed with this. So, uh, you know, the life vest, I didn't, you know, it's, it's, where is it located? It's under the seat. You pull it out, you put it on, you strap it over, you tighten it up and then you, um, you inflate by pulling the tabs. Uh, you do the oxygen mask, right? That one, I feel like I got down. I feel like that one's easiest one, but the emergency exits was fun too. It's like they plop you in a random part of the plane. Where is it? And they even do like a trick on you, right? They put you in the back of the plane and, um, they say, where's the nearest one? And you look forward, right? And you're like, oh, that's that one. But no, it's actually in the galley behind you. It's like, it, 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 it's really cool. And then the door operation, I would never have thought how to open a door on an airplane because, you should probably, hopefully, never need it. But like, you know, now I know how to open a door on an airplane because it showed me. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm, needless to say, I'm pretty impressed with the capability of being able to show all these and, um, you know, even even the simple interactions of like placing hands on your thighs to to figure out where they go, uh, and moving your feet to figure out where they go. Um, you know, I think that interaction enough was enough for me to retain that. I did this about two hours ago. And if you think about flight time, you know, hopefully it'd be enough for me to retain during my flight. Uh, so I feel like I've been doing a lot of talking. Blake, any any thoughts on what I just said? Yeah, so I think, I mean, now looking at the game itself, because I hadn't played it, uh, so this is really cool just to see kind of the approach they took. So basically you're you're almost choosing your, your coach for the game and then selecting from these different tasks that Nick talked about. And just as like a personal anecdote, I've always been terrified that I'm going to have to one day open the emergency door and not know how to do it and it'd be just terrifying. So this seems like it would be a great way to learn how to actually do it right. Uh, but I can only imagine that this medium of teaching people things, especially the the more intense ones like opening the door, because they're not really showing you any of that stuff physically. Uh, it just has probably a better ability to actually teach somebody something, even if it was just like a video they were watching, because this seems much more in depth than some of the, you know, quick tutorials, pe like air flight attendants are typically able to give having to like swap out the different pieces of equipment they're using and things like that. So I think all in all this, again, it makes sense, but the presentation is really, really well done. Um, and I could imagine it would be engaging and definitely like the, the retention rate, like you're kind of talking about, it makes sense because you're, you're only going through a, a small amount of material. I'm sure the, you know, experiences are not very long because it's meant to like quickly get you informed what you need to know and what you need to do. And even the study itself <laughs> and it's both like it's post-test formats was finding that there was a lot of, there was retention even after the, you know, the typical 90 minute time frame. Um, so it's pretty cool stuff overall. Let me, let me comment on a couple things and then we'll get to some of the chat here. So, uh, I, I do want to comment on the length of time. Um, I took like 20 minutes doing this to go through everything. That seems like a long time for me to do this while I'm sitting on the tarmac and you know what? I'll, I'll even rope in, uh, Kristen from chat's comment right now. Um, sounds very beneficial. But do you think people will ever really utilize this resource? Uh, you know, most don't even watch the flight attendants act this out before the flight. Um, mm -hmm. So, so great, great point, Kristen. And I that brings me back to actually the purpose of this study um, because I think it's hugely important. So I want to bring up a couple of uh, facts here from the article here, if I can find or the report rather, it's not an article. Um, so let's just go over some of these these uh, studies here that the FAA has conducted, right? So 
in 2000, um, NTSB did a study, investigated 46 accidents, a bunch of people, right? Let's just look at percentages here. Um, Of the 377 passengers who reported whether they watched the safety briefing, 50 passengers said they didn't watch the briefing. 182 passengers reported at least they watched at least 75% of the briefing. 457 returned questionnaires. 247 passengers reported, or roughly 54%, reported they had not watched the entire briefing because they had seen it before. 70 passengers reported they did not watch the entire briefing because it was basic common knowledge. Um, So basically, we're seeing really low numbers of people watching the briefing in the first place, right? Here's another study. 2009, U.S. Airways, uh, the Hudson River, the uh, Flight 1549 into the Hudson, right? Uh, NTSB reported that of the 150 passengers, 17% reported watching most of the pre-flight safety briefing. So we only have 17% watching most of it, right? And then an accident occurred. Where yeah, you needed to be watching it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Nineteen passengers or thirteen percent reported watching some of the demonstration. Only eight percent reported reading the safety card before it or during the flight. Um, and so basically, you're looking at like seventy percent of the passengers not watching any of the safety briefing, and over ninety percent not reading the safety card. So the whole reason for this is to, as an intervention for passenger safety. Um, kind of like a mandate, basically, for uh, for passengers to do. Now, if they can streamline this and make it super easy, right? Like, um, you know, I, I know there are things where they can't necessarily take off from the tarmac until they've done these briefings, right? The, the flight attendants have to be seated, um, and they can't do that until after they've given the briefing. It's, like, required by law. And so there's a lot that goes into this. But if we can figure out some way to streamline this, show you know uh there's in-flight entertainment on a lot of flights now right so maybe you put the game on a touch pad in front of them not tablets that everyone hands out right so (laughs) yeah you never get some of them back right um and i will say like doing doing this game playing this game um was kind of frustrating because it's like it it made me want to complete these uh, in a way that I wasn't, uh, let me, let me try to explain. So they're, they grade you on how well you do. Right. So they say like, Oh, well your legs oh. were not in the right place or your hands were not in the right place. And if you take too long doing it, they were like, you did it, but it was slow. And so like the reason <laughs> I did for 20 minutes was because I had to go back. Right. And there's a, there's something that you can do on these flights with in-flight entertainment that would make this, um, basically almost a requirement, right? What if you had to go through this training before you could get to in-flight entertainment? That would be awesome. I think that's one of the better ways to just check implement the boxes. The service, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like a tutorial before you can get in, right? I mean, they don't let you do it before you even get in the air anyway, most times. So it's like, yeah. just, you know, have, have it, you know, they, they still do the safety briefing, but then do this right before you get on uh, to any of the in-flight entertainment. And sure, it's not going to hit everybody. Some people have laptops. Some people have phones that they look at. Sure. But it's going to hit, what, like 80%? And so you flip those numbers for 70% not watching any of the safety briefing to 70% engaging with this type of game that's required before they can get to their in-flight entertainment. And sure, they might just like click through, click through, click through, provide an option to skip, whatever. But if it's there probably most people will do it or more people will pay attention to it than they are now right well yeah because you can kind of manage it right so you could require you know the ones that are definitely required by law for you to know similar to the things you do for like when they do in the safety briefing like buckling your seatbelt doing the oxygen all that kind of stuff so you don't have to like mandate that you're you're 100 percenting it or getting all the achievements all the way through right. but the fact that you have interacted with it kind of provides that consent on both sides that you have you understand the information you need to be in charge of because one thing I wanted to ask you Nick is you mentioned that it's on Android and iOS is that the like intended implementation cuz like to, to Kristen's point again in a different light I think I would I would have a harder time thinking I was going to do anything related to it if it required me to download something to my phone um and I, I imagine there's other people out there that would think the same um and so they would avoid it altogether so I think your idea of like integrating it into the infotainment systems is excellent 
because it's again like you're you're being rewarded with getting into the info infotainment system yeah that's the way i see it working if at all um this this application this game is actually developed by uh hci lab over at um university of ud i'm not quite sure what that is i'm looking it up right now so uh udine so um they've basically put out this game as a training application and it seems like um they are actually getting uh you know grants from the faa to do safety research um Excellent. But it seems like there are some other people out there who treat it like a full-blown game. So I'm not sure how that exactly works. Anyway, the... Um, I love every one of those people that treat that like a full-blown game. That's amazing. <laughs> They're talking about fleets of planes and stuff. And, you know, it's like air traffic, air traffic control, basically. Um, that could be so, so people, fun for kids, I would imagine. Like, especially yeah. on the different aircraft and stuff like that. Like, I didn't even think of, you know, across the the different versions of aircraft that are out there you have different you know safety features or whatever that may be on them so that's that's cool i could see how people would enjoy the game if they're like a big aviation head yeah it's it is kind of cool right so they they have a whole series of games and they even have an emergency water landing in vr if you want to try that out so let's go (laughs) (laughs) there's some pretty cool stuff on this um on their website so uh you know go check them out but um, you mentioned a point that I wanted to get back to, and I forgot what it was. Can you please spark my memory again? It was about, uh, it was about the intent, or maybe something else. I forget. I, that's the problem with recording these live, folk. Actually, absolutely. Folk, one one thing I did want to bring up because I have not necessarily heard games talked about in the with this term was uh, pervasive technology as an application, or persuasive technology as an application. And that was so I, I grabbed the broad definition of it. So it's using technology that's designed to change your attitudes or behaviors. And that's it's almost like, OK, that's that psychology in general is trying is trying to understand and change behavior. But it's not something that I, I really had seen used a lot of times. But apparently it's pretty prevalent in terms of design of software in HCI and things like that. So for anybody out there who had never really heard that term used as applied to video games. Um, so I. I do think this is interesting because actually I'm pretty sure Mateo put something in the chat related to this, but it seems like this serious games um, offshoot from the university in Italy has had impact in this kind of like training safety in various forms. So not just in aviation, but in other kind of like dangerous industries as well. So it's kind of cool that they're continuing to really focus on training and safety through game playing, even though, like you said, it's it's kind of lo-fi game playing, if you will. Although what you showed me, I was much more impressed with because that looked like some, you know, more modern Sims looking stuff than I expected. Uh, but definitely a, a cool field of study to be in at this point. Yeah, I agree. Um, I will say, you know, if you're if you're watching live, um I encourage you to check out Twitch chat. Mateo's been posting a bunch of really helpful extra links here for, um, you know, as it pertains to aviation safety and gaming. Uh, so, so go check those out. Um, Mateo's on it. He's, <laughs> he's out there just posting all these links. Um, yeah, I don't know how much else I have to say about this other than um, I think this is an interesting application and can be really powerful if they integrate it correctly. Uh, you know, and, and I, I think this obviously transfers to other domains and we, we'll get to that in just a minute, but, um, you know, any other closing thoughts on how this relates to aviation safety, Blake? I, I think one thing that I would be careful of, and I, I want to keep an eye on how the, the studies go, um, from Udyne and the serious games kind of application here, because it's, it's cool that the because basically the way the study was put together is it was a three by three design. So it was, you know, taking passengers, having them do three separate tasks. So the brace position, like Nick talked about, so that's like putting your hands under your knees and like bending over, um, bracing for impact, putting on your life vest as well as putting on an oxygen mask. Um, and then the three levels of me- or mediums that they were tested on or given these safety features on were either a briefing card, a video or this serious game. Um, which is so funny after looking at the screenshots of it, the name is great. But the, so like the three levels seem like it 
ca- it could capture anybody's attention across the three. So the briefing card could be like the quick and dirty way of picking up anything. Video is a little bit more involved. Um, and then the serious game is like very interactive. So I, th- I think based off of what we know about information processing, right? Like it's obvious that as you go up from each of these mediums that we should see kind of the video and the video game really providing a little bit more information retention, maybe because they're also able to provide more detailed information about these various procedures than what you might find in just an illustration, like the comic illustrations they show in briefing cards. Um, So it's one of those things where I would hope that they kind of keep all of the mediums of training for the interim because I think getting like I could imagine my if my grandmother was still alive like getting on a plane and like having to interact with something digital it might be hard for her to do so having you know the video format is great so I think it's just something that although the game has a lot of potential in terms of you know trainability and learning a lot of active skills I think for the interim until we can really figure out what the best way to present all these things are having multiple mediums across all all of them really makes the most sense yeah i think i think you're right i i i think this is a uh yes and situation where yes this works and we're going to keep doing the briefings that we're doing now right especially for um you know, like you said, folks who may not be so uh, technology literate, uh, and and you know, but I think this ser- this serves kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm bringing a comment here from Mateo, who says uh, this this might be engaging and fun, and could take away from the frustration of having to have a good view of the attendant and being able to rewatch. Could help with um, people with anxiety who are flying solo or who just have anxiety about being on airplanes in general, right? You know, knowing this stuff might be much better for them um, than, you know, because sometimes, sometimes you'll be sitting in a row and the flight attendant is right behind you and you can't really turn around to see them and the other flight attendant is way in front of you so you can't really see what they're doing. You don't really have a good view of what's going on. Sometimes they just play a video and they're fun and they got, you know, Lego characters on them or whatever. But, um, most of the time you're looking at a real world attendant. And if you can integrate this into the in-flight entertainment, that's almost a standard now, except for like spirit and frontier, you know, (laughs) I mean, I don't know how they're going to do it on there. They hand out like, I don't know, old 20, 2009 tablets or something. And cause that's all they can afford. Anyway. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think you're right. It's a yes and situation where they are bringing in old the old uh, way of presenting this information for those who need it, and then also the new way of information to help with some of this retention, right? And I, yeah, go ahead. It, I just want to follow up on kind of the second half of that comment from Mateo, and it is something I would be really interesting interested to understand more about is does this provide any kind of buffer for somebody who feels anxious about flying because i'm definitely one of those people i do not like getting in airplanes i don't like flying at all Um, but this kind of stuff i could see how it could make you feel more confident if things were to go wrong like that you feel like you know what the correct steps are or you feel like you could you know effectively execute them um and the and to the point of the game's design, it's meant to show you more than what they can, what they typically show you in that like five to ten minutes before you take off. So it'd be cool if if some of the like study cash, I guess, that goes to understanding safety and their retention, and then the application um, of playing these kind of games and seeing like do people just watch this stuff more? Um, really, what would happen in terms of anxiety, and would people be able to get over kind of you know in flight fears and stuff like that? Yeah. Uh, any other points that you want to make with this story before we move on to some of the social thoughts? No, I'm just really stoked that the community picked it because this is something I was really, really interested in in grad school. Um, and what I what I kind of wanted to do somewhat of my thesis on was understanding the impacts of video games to training and its transfer to the real world. Uh, so this was cool to get a glimpse of that that's still being done um, even like in 2021. So like, you know, eight years later. Yeah. One last point I'll make. Mateo brought it up here. There's another uh, app for in-flight oddities, like what's happening or um, kind of the status of the plane as you're flying to help with some of that flight anxiety. And I know I certainly have that up all the time, not necessarily as a as a anxiety soother, but 
um, just as a way to understand what's going on. Where where am I in relation to the world? You know, they have that like tracker. Um, so anyway, I want to move on. I did. We did ask on all of our socials earlier uh, today. Once we knew what the story was going to be, I think we're going to start doing this. We're going to call it social thoughts. This is kind of um, a way for you all to interact with us. Uh, you know, everyone likes hearing their name read on the show, and that's a way for us to connect with you as well uh, to bring in the thoughts from the community on. Um, these stories. So if you're looking out for them, look out for them on Thursdays. We're going to drop them as soon as we know what the story is for the day. Uh, so we did, you know, we did say, looks like tonight's news story is all about effectiveness of gaming as a training tool. We specifically asked, have any of you had experience with using games as training? And we heard back from friend of the pod, Ken Catchpole. <laughs> uh, and he writes, about 20 years ago, I worked with x-ray screeners in UK airports using game-type concepts to improve knife, gun, bomb detection in baggage. Uh, and I, I I shot back. I was like, oh, that's awesome. Is there you know any, any efficacy improvements from using this? And he said, absolutely. And a range of other benefits, including better selection and career structure. So... Uh, thanks for writing in, Ken. That's that's super awesome, and I want to hear from more of you. So if you see our our stuff out there, we're gonna post it. Uh, uh, I think on Twitter and Instagram and our our um, Slack and Discord channels as well. So be on the lookout for those. Um, all right, Blake. Any other last thoughts here? No, I think that pretty much wraps it up. That's awesome that that, that there was a lot of experience from the community even about like applications of games to various fields. Um, and it all seems like there's a lot of benefit to the aviation field in general. Yeah, I agree. Well, a uh, huge thank you to our patrons this week for to, for selecting our topic. And a uh, huge uh, thank you, I guess, to the FAA and the uh, Civil Aerospace Medical Institute for our news story this week. If you want to follow along... Uh, you can join me for office hours on Mondays where I find these news stories. And uh, we do post links to the original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog. You can also join us on our Slack or Discord uh, to get more involved in these discussion on these stories. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons, especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you so much for your continued support. Uh, speaking of Patreon, we are always pushing out new things on that platform for you all. Uh, if you are a patron, you know that we do Human Factors Minute. It's a ton of fun for us to put together and uh, really educational for you. So if you, uh, if you like the show and want to help support us financially, that might be right for you. Okay, let's switch gears and get into this next part of the show we like to call Stupid Graphics. It came from... It came from... When will Blake update the Stupid Graphic? I don't know! We'll One see. day. <laughs> One day. The Stupid Graphic that Nick made, let's be clear. All right, this is, uh, <laughs> this is the part of the show called It Came From. Uh, this is where we look all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. Uh, any topic is fair game, as long as we can talk about it as human factors professionals. Okay, uh, we got a couple tonight. Um, they're all from the user experience subreddit, so we'll get that out of the way. Okay, this first one's kind of a doozy here, Blake. Um, it's from uh, Aurora Daydream on the user experience subreddit. This is I've always heard about developers not taking designers seriously, but didn't have that happen to me. Until today. Uh, 
I started working at a new company a couple weeks back and came up with a solution for a minor problem which was validated by all relevant stakeholders. Meanwhile, the devs are not happy with the usability of the solution. This is something that affects less than 1% of the users, so there are a couple more steps than ideal in the solution since the focus was not making it the biggest action on the page. The devs decide they want to pitch their own solution, delay the sprint by a week, and propose the most out-of-context, bizarre solution. We went ahead with my original proposed solution, but I feel like this whole scenario came from zero trust in the designers. Not sure if I'm looking for advice or just ranting. Let's talk about it this way, Blake. Have you ever experienced pushback from a developer? Have they ever gone behind your back and implemented a solution that's not what you wanted? Um and or uh, have you ever had kind of a situation where you needed to navigate uh, this delicate balance of not ruining professional relationships and communicating effectively? Have you ever had that happen? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so to give a little context, and this is why I'm really interested in this question, context for me. So in, in a lot of my experience, my working with developers is a very kind of like siloed effect. So being a contractor, I don't necessarily work with a in-house developer. I work with contracting firms. Um, that's, typi- that's typically how things have run. Now, I've for anybody that knows me, one thing that I have started doing is doing more development. So I've been able to act as an in-house developer for a little while. But this is a, an all-familiar situation. Um, just because of, you know, differences in needs, opinions, you know, interpretations of, you know, what's usable, what's not, that kind of stuff. But it's interesting here because the way I'm reading this, and if you have a different interpretation, Nick, let me know. But it sounds like this is all in-house, all working on a product together. Yeah. Um, and still seeing some some similar type of, like, personality pushback type stuff. And one thing that I guess sticks out to me the most, and I wish we could like have these people on the podcast or on Twitch to tell us a little bit more about these situations. Because when you see like the devs are not happy with the usability of the solution, in this case, what does that mean? Like, what what is the usability issue? And they describe it a little bit more that like maybe there's a few more steps. And so sometimes, sometimes what I have found is people get very hung up on heuristics in user experience design, particularly. Uh-huh. It's like if it's less clicks, then it's better. Well, uh, from a performance standpoint, sure, but it's not. It doesn't always optimize the experience or make the most sense just to reduce every kind of click path. Um, so there may be more to it here. But to get more to the point of Like, is this coming from my developers not trusting me? Maybe, but I would read into this a little bit more that I I would say the developers maybe don't feel like they're included in in or part of the design process. And so, like, when we started this off, Nick, you asked, like, have you experienced this kind of thing in the past? And, of course, yes, I've, I've run into it more than once. But the way that I've found a way to navigate it like outside of just having a conversation or like bringing up user interaction data or like using stakeholders help is trying to include the development team in the design process more in an integrated fashion. Sometimes that can make them feel like they understand why the solution is the way it is. Um, and especially if we go back to kind of the, the, the statement they make here, like all of the re- the relevant stakeholders validated the solution Well, your developers are a relevant stakeholder. They're the people that are going to actually build this solution so that users have something to actually interact with. So I think it just comes from maybe they don't trust you or maybe they just don't feel like they're included enough in the process so they understand why changes are being requested and made. Because keep in mind, development's not always easy. And so sometimes maybe keeping things as they are is simpler and it makes more sense and it costs less time. Um, So delaying a sprint to go through a, a different type of solution Sometimes you can expect that, and it's just like a back and forth you have to have. But so, Nick, from your perspective, I mean, have you run into this before where, like, you're working on a project, you come up with a design concept with your designer, and you (laughs) propose it to the development team, and they don't want to implement it? Yeah, I've definitely run into this before. Um, I So I agree with a lot of what you're saying, Blake. I think the biggest thing is that you want to include the dev team on the design solution or at least get their feedback before you come down on the final solution right so i was working on a project and um 
I think there's there's one specific example I'm thinking of. I'll leave out details here uh, out of respect for the people I was working with. But um, basically, the idea is that um, they couldn't do what we were asking them to do for the product with the the basically the outcome that we were hoping for without kind of restructuring the code behind it, right? So it's a big overhaul to do the thing that we were asking. And um, they had agreed to it up front, thinking that they could do it. And then I think it was kind of a lack of communication on their part. They did not tell us that it could not be done until we had already moved on to the next thing. And so they came up with their own solution and did the thing. And it was in their mind what the best solution was. And we kind of came back and said, well, n- no, we thought the other thing was going to work. And then so we worked with them to find out, you know, what other solutions we could use uh, or do using the code that was, you know, possible within the code. Let's say that. So um, it was a huge headache because uh, we were trying to communicate and we were trying to involve them. And even to the best of our ability, we did involve them and they thought it was possible, but it actually wasn't. And so, um, you know, even in cases like that, you'll run into it. And it was one of those scenarios where it was a contracted developer. And so it wasn't in-house. It's not like I could just walk over to the next office over and say, hey, uh, what's going on with this? Or, you know, they couldn't walk over to us and say, hey, what's going on with this? Despite us saying, you know, our phones are open, just let us know. Um, And so... That makes it difficult. And so the, the best thing I can do is, you know, try to encourage that open communication. Hey, if you run into anything you're not sure about, just let us know. We'll be happy to, um, you know, go over some of the details that we found in our usability study with you to see what might what else might work if this doesn't work. Um, I don't know. I have a hard time with this question because, um, you know, I've uh, I think there is always that level of so it's not disrespect what's the word i'm looking for it's like uh basically developers don't necessarily trust you because you're coming in and telling them what to do and so like like we said you know involve them in the process as much as you can and when you can't show them how you got to your solution right show them the data that you got from your usability study. And that will make a large difference for the way that they perceive um, the solution, right? You say, it's not me telling you to do this. It's the users that are asking for this thing. It's the users that need this thing. And so kind of creating that empathy for the user as kind of the the prime solution. It sounds like a, a little bit different here because this is part of the 1% of users which sounds like a power user thing to me. Uh, and so they'll get used to it anyway. That's just my opinion. But, um, you know, it could be a little bit different in this context. But I don't know. I, it's, a, it's a tough situation no matter where you're coming from. And, uh, you know, just treat it with care, I guess, is my best, uh, but my best uh, advice there. Anything else for that one, Blake? One, just like one tidbit here for... Like a, especially since this is a, this is a designer and it's something I can identify with, um, especially being somebody who's focused a lot of the last year and a half on front end development and running into cases where I have to go back to my team and be like, "There's just no way I I can alone develop that solution. Uh, we have to think of another design solution." And here's X, Y, and Z we can do. Uh, is if you really feel like you're running into a case where your developers don't trust you, you may need to just interact with them about that specific thing. It's not easy to do. It's not an easy (laughs) conversation to have. But I think sometimes designers can run into that they, they start designing solutions, they prototype and test those solutions in a vacuum away from the development team without understanding what are the limitations of the existing framework or code that's already built or budget and timeline. So interacting with your development team to understand those things, that's what I'm talking about when you're when I'm talking about understanding how to bring them into the design process. Um, and having them be, you know, flies on the wall for user testing is a great way to, to also let them see, like, you know, I, I get that this thing that you guys are not happy with from a usability perspective, 
makes sense and you have rationale for it. But from an end user point of view, it's affecting like nobody and not anybody that can get around it. So it's, it's just something that you have to really kind of be proactive about. And I don't think anybody teaches you this kind of stuff in school or, you know, it's something you get mentored on your, you know, first few years in a job. So don't feel bad about it. There's plenty of proactive ways to go and kind of get respect or get on the same page as your development team. You had a good segue in there somewhere about, you know, designing in a, uh, a silo, a vacuum. Yeah, there you go. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to lead into this next uh, question because I feel like that is a great segue. I feel like I suck at my job. This is from Saturday Gal. Uh, Saturday Gal on the user experience subreddit. Uh, I'm working in a large organization, got put on a team working on one of their apps. It's only my fifth week and the industry slash product is complicated. So they said all will take around six months for me to get basically get it. I was tasked with coming up with some ideas for a new product feature and it's like I completely missed the mark. I just overdesigned and was too visionary with it. This is the second time this has happened, but I kind of just have to go for it because I don't have much knowledge, the users or the product. That's even what they said to do. They they know I'm green, but it's embarrassing. And in our group discussions, I've shut down because I feel like I don't know enough to add to the conversation, if that makes sense. On top of that, I keep missing small details that I don't think they understand the way I work by going big picture than details later. I feel anxious and on edge my manager keeps reassuring me, but I feel like I don't mesh and come off completely uneducated to UX. I've also unmanaged issues with attentiveness and focus, and I have trouble focusing and listening to conversations through a screen all day. I feel like shit. Help me. Wow. <laughs> That's really heavy. Nick, I want to take a different approach to how I answer some of these. I happened to read something today, and I think it fits really well into it. So I'm going to read like a blurb. You read uh, it. I've got about this. Yeah. So so failure is part of success. It allows us to improve, and we shouldn't be angry about it. And when you open up your mindset and you try to just free yourself up to just try and get rid of the fear of failure, you'll often find that you'll be more successful down the road. And that's really what this sounds like to me is you have walked into something brand new and I don't know what large organization means, but it probably means something pretty intense if they're telling you you're not going to understand really how to make an impact before you hit the six, six months mark. That means they've paid attention to the people they've brought in and they've measured and done the work to figure out how long does it take for people to wrap their head around how we work, what we expect, the quality of work, the product, whatever. So, I mean, I'd, I would just take this as a great opportunity for, obviously you made it, you made it in. It's only your fifth week. If you feel like you're failing, that's okay. Be super active and proactive about getting feedback and understanding like, okay, if I feel like I'm falling short, one, am I actually falling short? And then two, what are things that I can work on or think about? It does sound like that you're probably in some tough conversations, uh, which is going to happen. I mean, in a lot of lot in a lot of larger corporations, they have different types of cultures. Sometimes it's you know, be who you are, and it can be really a tough environment for somebody that's new to a large organization. Um, and if you're noticing that you're, you're missing small details or you think big picture first, one way that I've gotten around that before is setting expectations when we start meetings of, Hey guys, don't focus on the details, focus on whatever, whatever the main goal of what we're trying to get to is. Don't worry so much about all of the little tiny things that we haven't, I haven't figured out yet. Cause I'm not in that phase of design. Um, but ultimately you kind of have to figure out what works best for you and the teams you work on. Uh, but Nick, have you, have you ever felt this way? And if, if you have, like, what have you done to try and mitigate some of it? Blake, let me tell you, uh, we picked this during the pre-show. I didn't read through the whole thing. I read like little excerpts, but reading it tonight, it felt like this is a younger me writing, um, my experience with a, a job, <laughs> uh, that I had. So, like I had no idea the domain. I feel like I came in, tried to do what they asked of me and just felt like, um, it wasn't, uh, that's what I'm looking for. It wasn't, 
satisfactory. And um, what I did was I started a podcast because I felt like I needed to show my intelligence some other way. And as sad as an answer that is, um, I like it took a very long time. It took about six months for me to get comfortable with the teams that I was working with and the projects that I was working on before I felt like I was kind of up to speed. And there are just industries where you will spend years working on something and still feel like you just have no idea. And it sucks. It does suck. It really, really bad. Um, like I will say there are domains that took me years to understand. And it's because I had no prior experience with them. It's because I had, you know, the, the limited access to users will say that. And the people who do it did have access to users, uh, maybe didn't communicate what needed to be communicated down. And so it made it a very tough working environment. Um, all I can say is try your best. I mean, if it is a large organization, the best you can do in your free time is to research who you're working for and the product that you're on. I think, you know, there, that, that was something that helped me out a lot. You know, there are publicly available things a lot of the times that you can look up to see more information on that, you know, if you can get an understanding of something and if you don't understand it, ask somebody and see if there's reading materials that you can get to help better wrap your head around this problem. Um, it's tough. It's really tough. And I feel like I'm talking to, uh, you know, early career Nick. I, I do. I feel like this is me writing this a couple years ago. It really sucks. Uh, and I'm very sorry that you're experiencing this. Um, I don't know what else to say. Like, it gets better? I don't know. It does. I mean... It- this is so early in the game for this person. Five weeks. I, I just, yeah. if you can, like, be be retrospective and think about the fact that you're, you're working in a large organization. So something got you to the dance. So you know how to do something. And that's a good sign. It's not easy to get in large companies. I don't know, I don't know which one this is or who it is or what the product is. Uh, but it's not an easy thing to do. So if you feel like your team around you is supportive, like, take the support and continue to try and grow. I think, I mean, Nick, I think you're right. I think it just time needs to go by and they need to get more comfortable in their skin at at the job. Yeah. Uh, Either that or form connections with the people, like you said, Blake, that are working with you and, and make them like you enough to not can you, if you still don't understand the product after years. So, I mean, you know, there's that approach too. Um, (laughs) I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I, I, I'm really sorry. That sucks. And I totally, I totally get it. Um, all right, let's get into this next one here. Is it normal for UX tests to keep failing? This is by sad mustache on the user experience subreddit. I'm a developer that works with a UX team. I know just basics of UX. I have been writing tests for UX and majority of them fail. The website looks outdated, something from mid or early 2010, it's really disheartening to see uh, the majority of my work to be discarded. So I wonder if that's normal. Do majority of UX tests are meant to fail? Blake, do you design your UX tests to fail? Absolutely not. Although sometimes you're you're asking questions and one of the answers can be you fail or it's not good. Uh, but this, this is kind of an interesting one because it's – the polar opposite of the first question. Yeah. Now we've got a developer asking us about uh, writing UX test. I'm a little confused on what writing a UX test would be in this kind of situation. Uh, I would imagine maybe there's specific unit tests you could be writing. They're really focused on user experience in like front end issues. Um, and if they keep failing, that's that's awful because if it's happening in a development side of things, then then you probably really do have an issue. Uh, there also seems to be something going on here with the developer feeling like their work's getting tossed out um, based on some of these tasks too. So I don't know. I mean, you don't want 
to continue failing UX tests, no, that's not a great thing. Um, it could have to do with how you're putting them together. If you're asking the wrong questions, you have the wrong users, but usually you, you kind of start to get a sense of that early on. Uh, yeah. So it, it may mean that it's time to really take a step back and stop running tests and kind of think about like what has the data told you thus far about why there's failure in some of these UX tests. Again, I would love to bring people on like this was a radio show and talk to them about these things because I I want to have like a operational definition here of what UX test means. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, Nick, do you think this is okay? Uh, my interpretation of this is that they are coding up prototypes, and um, this to me is could be at fault of the UX or human factors person on the team who is failing to develop um, prototypes that are appropriate for the stage that they're at. You know, if you, if you're still trying to figure out whether or not a design would work and you're asking somebody to code that design up so that way it can be tested, that feels like a waste of resources to me. There are ways that you can test uh, things like mock-ups or a PowerPoint uh, interface, you know, test that to begin with instead of a full-blown test. Um, it could also be, you know, coding up an A-B test. I don't, I'm, I'm again, unsure like you are, Blake, of what UX test means, but what I'm understanding is that they are, they are testing prototypes, especially if they are testing something mid to early 2010, uh, that sounds like something that's probably really flat, maybe wireframey design to me. Um, and maybe the UX person or human factors person isn't communicating exactly what they're testing. I think there are ways to get around it to the point where um, they're only coding up like a final solution. And this just seems wasteful to me. Uh, in terms of whether or not you design te UX tests to fail, I don't think you do. I think you design UX tests to be exploratory, right? Um, you have a hunch about something. If it works, uh, then your hunch is validated. If it does not work, then you go back to the drawing board literally and figure out something else that's going to potentially work. But if you've done your research on your users and know what they need, then theoretically you should never need to uh, get to the point where you, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You don't, you, you don't need to redo the work, right? You just add to it. It's the whole iteration cycle, right? Um, you'll have some degree of understanding to begin with. And so you start with that and then you come back and all the work isn't thrown out. Maybe some of it, right? But it feels like in this case, they are literally a B testing something, from the get-go and don't quite understand the user. Maybe they got the person from the second question here. I don't know. <laughs> like Maybe, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. This is a tough one because uh, I don't come from the dev world, but I do understand empathy and communication, and so I think that's really important. So if you're listening, communicate with your developers and communicate with your other uh, with your team. That's That's the bottom line for me. Absolutely. One thing here too, just like we recommended for the user experience person, uh, ask questions, go talk to the UX team and kind of understand what the process is. Cause maybe that'll help illuminate to them, like how you feel. Cause I think it's important for anybody to know that you feel like your work's being discarded. If you're a user experience designer, if you're a HF practitioner, if you're a developer, whatever, um, that you shouldn't be feeling that way. And if, if there is rationale for it, if you know it, maybe it'll change your opinion. But like Nick said, this feels like an, an odd use of resources, um, given yeah. that if you're just developing something, you don't think it even looks right, and then it's failing or quote-unquote not succeeding in any way or telling people, telling the UX team what they need to know. It's probably just a good time to have a conversation with the team. Yeah. All right. No time for one more thing tonight, but that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. Do you like games? Do you like airplanes? You can hang out with us on our Slack or Discord. Get to us on any of our social channels. Let us know. Uh, visit our official website and sign up for our newsletter. Stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, leave us a five-star review. That is completely free for you to do, except for your time. We really appreciate those. Tell your friends about us. That's number two. 
you know, that helps the show grow. Um, if you like it, chances are your friends and colleagues will like the show as well. Three, if you're able to, consider supporting us on Patreon. Uh, we will always take your dollars, but we'll give back to you for doing so. And as always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Blake Garnstorff for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about flying games? You guys can always find me inside of the Human Factors Cast Discord or Slack at Blake, and you can find me across social media at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch Mondays at 4 Pacific for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.